mic check. So it's been a while since we've done this. <laughs> Record in person. Is this our sound test or is this our actual episode? It's the sound test. Oh, okay, great. to ask you I'm listening are you an emotional person uh that depends on who you ask but what's so wrong with it anyway nothing at all I mean with everything going on in the world right now I'm emotional as fuck most of the time <laughs> well welcome to another episode of the reproductive justice happy hour I'm your host Kristen and I'm Serbi and we are here together again in London to help you find your Desi Videshi feminist happy place. And we're doing a live recording again after, well, I guess all of our recordings are live because they're us talking to each other, but we're actually in the same room for the first time in a long time. Yes. And today we're going to be talking about exploring feelings and emotions and talking about politics. Um, and we wanted to explore this uh, topic more with our listeners, but also with each other. Um, and really see how we can articulate our feelings about feelings, <laughs> especially yeah. as it pertains yeah. to politics. Yeah, and you first asked me the question of, of do I am I an emotional person? And my first response is to say no, because emotion has such an insulting quality to it, the way it's often phrased today. So to be to be sensitive or to be emotional has the connotation of like you're showing too much weakness, you can't handle life. But I think, and I think you would agree with me, that there's actually a really positive discourse about emotion that we need to be talking about a lot more. Yeah, and, and, and for our listeners to have some context, um, maybe you should tell them what actually made us think more about this issue in particular. Um, and how, you know, things that have been happening around us and with uh, people around us, with politics in general, um, it's hard to not be emotional about it, especially um, everything that's happened with um, the immigration, with erosion of uh, abortion rights, mm -hmm. the, the erosion of immigration justice, all of those things. I just, I just can't believe that people are not hysterical right now. No, we actually, we should all be given medals on the daily for keeping our shit together because yeah. it's been pretty bad and not that we won't have some silver linings that we'll get to in this episode but I think we just take a moment to acknowledge that some really heavy shit is happening and it's scary and I think for me kind of what inspired my um, part of wanting to talk about this with you is with the the recent Supreme United States Supreme Court um, season <laughs> like of decisions that came down I mean there were this has been going on for months, but they were a lot of 5-4 splits with the conservatives getting uh, to be in the majority opinion on everything from arbitration that gives companies a lot more power over their employees. So any kind of class action lawsuits are now basically going to be a thing in the past, and that includes sexual harassment cases as well. So a huge barrier for the Me Too movement coming up to things like crisis pregnancy centers in California are not required to give factual information about abortion that had been a landmark decision that happened in the state of California 
Um, and now the Supreme Court has said it's no good to upholding the travel ban, uh, even though it had such anti-Muslim content and Sonia Sotomayor gave a really powerful dissent showing exactly why that was part of the intent of the Trump administration's policies and why the Supreme Court kind of fucked that one up by supporting it. But the whole point is that there's been a progressive series of decisions coming down that I find very problematic for our country. And then on top of it, Justice Kennedy retires. And it's not like he was that, I mean, he was not my favorite justice by any stretch. And I definitely, he's actually a very conservative judge. And I didn't agree with a lot of his decisions, but he was there on a lot of key votes that if he hadn't have voted the way he did, um, wouldn't have wouldn't have gone in a positive direction. So for instance, on same-sex marriage, right. yeah. um, on some earlier key cases about abortion. And I just woke up the day after he retired and I was really feeling the weight of everything that had happened in just a few months and how much import the, the courts really have. And I knew this for a long time because I've been reading a lot about it, but uh, the Christian right in particular is very organized about winning the courts, and they've been doing a very good job, not just at the Supreme Court level, but the lower levels, federal and district and state courts. Yeah, um, It's a strategy, and they've stuck to it, and it's exceeding for them. But when you think about the fact that Supreme Court justices are appointed for life, and Trump has already gotten to appoint Neil Gorsuch as right. one, and he's in his 40s, so he's going to be there forever. I just, it just made me so angry that the outcome of this presidential election is going to have such weight for generations to come. I, I think what is interesting is, you know, like literally there is something happening every day. And many things every day, and it's too much to keep up with. And I, when you were talking about everything that's been happening in the U.S., um, and it's been hell of a month, like June has been hell of a yeah, month with yeah. really devastating news almost every day. And it's... It's, it's sort of, like, scary how normalized it is now that, you know, we just, like, oh, another thing that Trump did or... Um, and I was thinking on top of that, like, keeping up with the news in India, for instance, yeah. which has itself also been very um, problematic and really, really difficult to grapple with, with the lynchings happening, mm -hmm. um, fake news taking over WhatsApp uh, for several people, um, you know, the way the... Um, Supreme Court has also been impacted by um, biased attitude in India as mm -hmm. well. And, and, you know, Supreme Court justices actually came out and held a press conference about it. Um, absolute silence from the Prime Minister on almost anything of substance. Yep. Yep. Um, it's, it's hard to deal with all of that together. And when you were saying that, you know, that you woke up that morning and you, and you just had, maybe you had reached this threshold you like no more like I want to feel what I'm feeling right now I don't want to suppress it any longer and I and I was thinking about how do we sort of like come to that point where we're like okay no more like I should be allowed to feel like the anger the yeah the frustration the sadness everything that I'm feeling at this point well I think as I phrased it to you it was the worst that I felt it felt like a total gut punch it was the worst I'd felt since the 2016 election I think and, but at the same time, I felt bad about feeling that way, 
because it felt so self-indulgent to be like, all this stuff is happening, and of course people are resisting it, and there's important movement happening there that we shouldn't disregard. But just so fucking angry at the short-sightedness of people. Like, some people wanted this. Some people want the country to be transformed in a direction that I don't think is healthy for anyone, including conservatives. But other people who just sort of ignorantly voted for Trump or they voted for him because they didn't like Hillary, they didn't connect with her, like she was too detached, and we're going to talk about that later too. But just feeling like, how could anybody, this still isn't what I want to say, but how, how could anybody do this and not realize the magnitude of what they had done? And then I tried to talk about it with some other people and the response I got was not like, oh yeah, this is really serious and I understand why you're feeling this way. It was, why are you getting so emotional about it? Why are you raising your voice about it? Why are you so passionate about something that we can't really do that much about? And it's like, that's true. I cannot, I cannot appoint a Supreme Court justice. I can't vote on Trump's choice. I have absolutely no control over what happens there. But I can be angry about it. <laughs> Is that, is anger always not constructive? Is there any kind of constructive outburst of emotion or outrage Yeah. that, yeah, we can use for I mean, not just yeah. yeah, I mean, not just anger, like, even what we felt after the 2016 election result, just pure grief, I guess, yeah. <laughs> you know? Yeah. Um, and the fact that, you know, we have, every time we, especially as women, if we, if we feel something and we talk about what we are feeling, there's this um, sort of dismissal of like, why are you getting so worked up about it? Yeah. Um, like I've been told, like I'm not an American citizen, but I follow the politics very closely. And when everything had happened uh, with the 2016 election, I was back in India talking to a friend about it. And I was very passionate and animated in what I was trying to say. And he's like, but you don't even have the right to vote in that country. Like, why are you getting mm. so worked up? And in my head, I was like, well, I feel invested in this issue. Yeah. And it has importance that goes far beyond just the borders of the United States, you know? Um, and I'm allowed to be whatever I feel, regardless of whether I am staying in the U.S. or I'm a citizen or not. Like, it can, it's, I mean, feelings are universal. You can feel yeah. them, right? Um, and, and that was, it was a way to, I think, also shut me up. Right. Um, and be like, you know, it doesn't really impact you directly. So why are you so bothered about it? But as we say as feminists, that person is always political, but also if I don't stand up for someone else who's being oppressed, then there is no point in fighting this battle, right? Like we have to stand up for each other. Right. Um, and if some, we see oppression happening anywhere in any part of the world, we have to speak out because we can't just, keep sitting and waiting for them to come after us and be like, oh, now I'm going to stand up and fight. But I think as women, we are always told to just zip it <laughs> and just be like, you know, get a grip. You know, get a grip on your emotions and, and don't feel so strongly. And especially with politics, which is supposed to be so rational and logical. But every time I see our politicians, I think they're the worst drama queens on the planet, right? So it's... And I think... I, and that is something that we've been discussing a lot about is why why is it that feelings and emotions are pitted against being logical and rational um, and somehow looked at as inferior to 
policy making or to making decisions around elections or governance and stuff like that. And I think that is the crux of what we wanted to explore in this episode today. Yeah, to touch on a couple of things, what you're saying, like, I think that for the most part, the people that have been giving me a similar response of just like, well, we can't do anything about it. Um, or, you know, maybe, maybe some of these people are starting to change their tune now that things are seeming to have a wider impact, but it was like, oh, it's, it's only going to be four years forgetting entirely about the courts, right? Which is a huge thing that he ran on anyway. But or give Trump a chance, right? Give him a chance. Oh, oh no! Like, and I was just reading this article by Jennifer Wright in Harper's Bazaar, and she was saying the same thing. Like, a lot of the people who have told her not to worry about this administration uh, taking away access to abortion have been men who've been saying, like, oh, he's really a Democrat. He's really pro-choice, and like, don't don't worry about it. It's going to be fine, right? And obviously, it's not fine, and it was never going to be fine once he decided to ally himself with the Christian right. Like, even if he personally doesn't believe in any of it, which I don't really think he does, I don't think he really has any sort of faith tradition that he holds dear, or anything that he holds dear other than himself. <laughs> but, but yeah, just like, and I think even if these are well-meaning people, but just that the impulse to be like, you don't need to be talking right now. It's like, don't worry about it. You can't do anything about it. There's definitely a gender thing happening. Yeah. And like what you're saying too about like, okay, you're not a citizen in the United States. You can't vote there. You can definitely participate in the resistance, but there's a, so like a limited amount of power that you have in the country. Just like there's a limited amount of power that I have mm-hmm. to be involved in Indian politics, mm-hmm. um, even though I follow and care about it. But... I think we should pay attention to that, what you're trying to, you were trying to say about that, that feeling of empathy and connection with other people. And if you don't stand up for somebody who's currently being oppressed, they're not going to be there to help for you, but also just building those kinds of cross solidarities. And I think, I think we need to pay attention to, to that and not invalidate that feeling of, I mean, you feel a loss. Mm -hmm as well and I know that you grieve for I mean that's too strong a word tell me but for like what's happening in the United States and no I absolutely do and sometimes I and sometimes I do feel and I'm questioned why I feel so strongly about it um but having lived in that country and you know being involved in different aspects of the community and, and relationships that I've built there I mean even the relationship we have the friendship and you know it's built around the issues that we feel passionately about um, it's hard not to feel grief or, or sadness, you know, yeah. despite the fact that it's thousands of miles away from where I live. Um, and, and I, I just feel like, I think what angers me is the audacity of people to question how I should be feeling or what, yeah. what I should not be feeling, right? Like, like, why do they get to decide that for Exactly. You? Yeah. And I mean, we tout the whole globalization thing a lot, right? Like, oh, we're all interconnected. We're doing things together, we are like one big family. So if we are that, then we are allowed to feel for each other, regardless of whether we live in that country or we are, I don't know, a citizen or not. It's, it's I mean, I, I think a lot of issues that are happening in the United States um, are about social justice, equality, and these issues mm-hmm. are pertinent even in India. So it's not even about a specific issue, it's more about what that issue is trying to address. And if I'm standing uh, for equality, and I'm talking about equality, and I'm not 
and I'm like, oh, I'm only going to talk about equality in India and not the United States. That's just stupid to me. <laughs> it's yeah, it's it's a flawed argument. So I think yeah. um, the other, yeah, I mean that's that's just a way of distancing yourself from. I'm not going to look what what's happening in that part of the world. I'm just going to focus here. But I feel like everything is connected and everything comes together at the end. So it's it's stupid to think that you can care about one thing and not the other. And that's supposed to be the upside of globalization, right? Yeah. I mean, for all the fucked up relations between labor and capital and right. environmental devastation and if anything that comes good out of globalization, yeah, right? It's supposed to be this one thing that at least we all have a better, or many of us have a better sense of what's happening in other parts of the world, and we can talk to people and say like, "Hey, I've noticed this weird thing happening over here. Are you guys experiencing something similar? Mm-hmm. You know, yes or no? We have a much better sense of mm-hmm. how." how economies and ideologies are circulating now than we used to. And I think that that is a really powerful thing. Yeah. But then as things have gotten tough, there's also sort of this impulse to withdraw and be like, I have to take care of myself and I have to take care of my own people, my own family. And a lot of what I've been hearing from some of the same people who want to shut down me being passionate about it or saying that same thing, just like, it doesn't matter. We just take care of ourselves. And that's true. Like self-care is important, but... I, I don't see any value in narrowing the focus that much. And yeah. I don't really know how to take care of myself if I don't know how to how to relate with others and act in, in the world, too. Like, I don't know what, what's, what's a good decision for me and for my family if I don't have a sense of, like, the future of humanity. I mean, not yeah. to put it... No, that's Make a big deal about it, but yeah. And, and I think it also just absolves people of, like, taking up any responsibility for what's going on. Like, um, I think it was Barack Obama who said this, that democracy is not just one-time election thing. It really, it really demands people uh, to be involved in it throughout, you know, those four years um, between the, when the elections happen. And I think that is so true because we can't just say that, okay, uh, we elected Trump or whoever elected Trump and now he's in power and we should just wait until four years and like what someone else in in the meanwhile we'll just like live in our own shells and, right and pay attention to what we have to do and take care of ourselves and not worry about what's happening in the world outside um i think that's a very uh, myopic view of how democracy should actually work um and how to actually build a more um equal and just society because that's really absolving ourselves of any responsibility um and that's very dangerous i think that's what um the right wing and people like Trump have been taking advantage of, to be quite honest. Yeah. Um, yeah. Complacency in the sense that it's yeah. it's not never gonna get that bad here, right? As it does in other places, and you know, I, I I maybe this is just a part of American exceptionalism that's hard to kill. <laughs> this idea that oh, we emerged from the ashes of British colonialism and very quickly built this whole thing and. We have this wonderful multicultural paradise. We all know that that's not true. And mm-hmm. although some of those values, I think, are that is part of what makes America great. Um, but we have to do it every day. We have to show up for democracy every day. And I think it's actually it's a very feminist perspective on it, right? Because I mean, right. I think about gender and sexuality, like these things that are in a very kind of Judith Butler sense. Like you're always you're always performing. You're always in the process of becoming, and nothing is ever finished. Right. And I know that gives a lot of people anxiety because they think like, oh, I'm not, I'm not ever totally solidified. Like, yeah. how do I really crystallize myself? And the answer is that you don't. 
if you're still learning and paying attention, you don't. Right. But that's a good thing. And it's a good thing that democracy is always going to be something we have to be becoming every single day with every act. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's also so fucking hard and people don't want to do it. <laughs> I, think, I think that's precisely why people don't want to do no, it. No, it's hard work. It is hard work. It's like paying attention <laughs> to all your local elections. or It demands you know. too much of us, right? Yeah, and it's, we're all tired. I think no wonder like people... In India, every time there's a poll, like young people are like, oh, you know, I think 50% of them would prefer dictatorship. Because <laughs> that would just require not to do any work. Yeah, it's and like, well, we're <laughs> fucked anyway, so it doesn't matter. <laughs> it's really <laughs> over now, guys. Um, and I think that's something we are not really taught, that democracy is, a, is hard work. and Yeah. It's work every day. circle back to this question of why expressing passion and anger, especially about something that's so important as um, politics and policies, and you know, why why shouldn't I have outrage about thousands of children being kidnapped from at the border and being orphaned from their parents? Like, that seems like something to get upset about. If, if anything is going to get you angry, like, that seems like something to be rightfully angry about. And yet, there's such there's such a bias against, especially certain people, expressing anger in that way, raising their voice, um, not just, as you're saying, shutting up about it and being like, well, I can't really do anything anyway, so I should just sort of go about my day. Uh, and I mean, I think that there's something very gendered about that. I think it also comes from a lot of people not really understanding what true empathy really means and how like how you internalize I mean it's one thing to say because there's a big difference between sympathy and empathy right like you can sympathize with somebody and you feel a little bad about it you're like oh I can see how that's a bad situation for that person and why they might be hurt that's fine I mean that's better than just saying I don't fucking care right (laughs) um and going back to your playstation or whatever but but empathy means like you're you're actually really putting yourself in the other person's situation, and there's something that's resonating with you. Like maybe you've actually experienced it. Yeah. Uh, but you, if you haven't experienced that exact same thing, you can, you've experienced something similar enough, or you have a similar fear about something that could definitely happen to you if you're in a similar position of vulnerability, or you might be one day, and, like that's a really. That, that kind of emotion, like, if you actually make that connection, uh, it can be really shocking in a way. And it doesn't just mean being sad and feeling, like, grief and loss, but it can actually mean fear and it can mean outrage. And I think... Yeah. And, and I think the point you were making earlier about how it's biased towards certain people, so gender definitely plays a role, I think. Um, but also other marginalized groups, right? Of course. If they voice their concern or if they're angry, upset, fearful. Yeah. Um, a the lot stereotype of, times, of the angry black woman, right, for instance. Exactly. Um, they're often just told that you're being hysterical. Right. And you're just 
you're yeah you're just getting too worked up about this nothing's nothing's gonna happen well we know how that's gone <laughs> before um but i think also people who tend to tell us um at least in my experience and i think perhaps true for you as well it has been people who come from a place of privilege and power and um i i think that they have the least to um, be bothered about or least to lose um, in terms of everything that's happening right now. Um, they do not share the same vulnerability that you and I share as a woman when we think about our abortion rights or access to contraception being taken away or the fact that uh, as a brown person, if I try and come to the, the US border, I, I, you know, I could stand to um, be separated from my child. Mm-hmm. Um, I think a lot of those fears are not felt by people um, who often tell us to shut up and not feel as strongly about these things. I, I don't want to be rude about it, but I think that's just the fact. And it doesn't mean that they, um, they're coming from a place of bad intention, but it is just that they can afford the privilege to um, not worry about it. You know, we, you and I cannot afford that privilege. We have to, we have to be worried about the fact that you know our um, our right to bodily autonomy is at stake right mm-hmm. now in both India and the United States. Our right to freedom of movement is perhaps also at stake right now, and I mean various other things. Our right to freedom of expression uh, in terms of religious or gender identity or whatever it could be. Um, they're all at stake and I think people who often um, tell us that we are not allowed to feel what we feel um, stand very um, small amount to lose in any of these conversations and so for them it's it's really easy to distance themselves and be like hey you know just just keep a cool head on your shoulders <laughs> like it's not going to be that bad it's you know you just need to think more rationally about this and not not get worked up and it doesn't mean that if you are relatively powerful and privileged that you can't have an empathetic understanding. Yeah, you, can. you can. But you have to work at it. Exactly. And I don't think there's anything wrong. Like, I don't think you're being rude by pointing that out. I don't think there's anything wrong with saying, like, again, like, as with our democratic institutions, this is something, it's a practice, it's a meditation, if you will. And some people are going to be better at it than others. And it doesn't always go along the lines of, of power, but I think that can have a lot to do with it, and so, so perhaps if, if there if there's if you perceive, if you perceive a greater distance between yourself and someone else who's being oppressed, you're gonna have to just work yeah a lot harder to try and get there to understand like why they might do what they do, and it's just maddening to me. Again, I know I'm using a lot of examples from the U.S., but just thinking about this this border issue, this immigration issue, and a lot of the people who are critical of migrants coming with their kids, and like, you've heard this phrase, of like, people are just like, oh, well, it's their fault because they shouldn't have brought them in the first place. Right. And you're like, are you even thinking about what people are trying to flee? Yeah. Flee? Like, yeah. why are they coming to the United States? I'm sure that most of them would rather stay in their home communities with their extended families and everything if they felt that they were safe to do so, if they could have uh, economic livelihood that was secure, if they weren't yeah. going to be 
uh, murdered by gangs or whatever the case is, yeah. the people who are coming to the United States aren't the, the people committing gang violence and committing rape, whatever. Like, that's, yeah. that's a myth. And it's amazing to me that people in similarly vulnerable circumstances in the United States can't understand that. Yeah, and I think it's really, really infuriating, the utter lack of empathy. Yeah. It's... And part of it is, like, white, especially poor white people in the United States don't really see themselves as poor and vulnerable. I mean, there's mm. this whole myth of we're only temporarily inconvenienced by poverty, but because of Jesus or whatever. Like, I mean, this is a whole other thing. I didn't talk about this before, but this prosperity yeah. gospel, right? right? Like, I think, like, oh, it's it's coming around again. This is just a temporary state. Yeah. We're not really, we're not really low class. Yeah. You know? Yeah. And, yeah, and I think that is something that adds to, I guess, our misery. Is that, like, when we are feeling something and we talk about those feelings, we have to share the, ad, not share, but take on the added burden of actually explaining to people why we are feeling that. Yeah. And, like, <laughs> making them walk towards that empathy and be like, yeah. hey, why aren't you feeling this? Sometimes I really want to just, like, shake them up and be like, why aren't you feeling what I'm feeling, right? And and I think the, the other point I was thinking about when you were talking about just this and the lack of empathy that we see a lot around us right now is I think in some ways the way we talk about policymaking has been influenced a lot. Of, I mean, of course, it's still very male-dominated. Mm-hmm. So it's been seen as something that is supposed to be driven by very rational mm-hmm. uh, you know logical decision making but policy is all about impacting people and if there's anything impacting people it has to involve emotions and feelings like people are not robots right, right. we feel and we we think and we and we can do both at the same time think and feel um, and I think that reminds me of something that I, I was reading recently about um, a blog on on medium and we can link it to our website as the title was feelings are facts too Mm. and i think with all the discourse around fake news um we are becoming more you know cognizant in some ways which is a good thing about that facts are important of course and we shouldn't be placing the same amount of importance on alternative facts um but i think we are also then losing out on that whole aspect of that feelings are also important as facts and they maybe are just a different kind of facts. And and the fact that we need to place importance on both of these is very important, especially when we think about policymaking and governance. Because if you're only driven by facts and you're very disconnected from how that's impacting the community, and, and we see that in our NGO, nonprofit development world as well, um, if you're not connected to how people are feeling on the ground, your policies are often going to just fall flat. They're not really going to be impacting or making anyone's life better. Or making it worse in a lot of cases. Exactly. Because you're just totally ignoring you know, decades of relationships among local organizations that right. already have some idea of what they, <laughs> exactly. what they need and like what they've been trying to work toward. And I think there's a really important distinction that to, to draw out what you're saying here. Because like one of the... To make broad brushstrokes, like one of the major differences in this new, like, between this new cadre of conservatives or whatever we're going to call them, the, the Trumpian type people, is that they've, they've kind of decided that taking this, like, feelings or facts thing to one extreme, saying that anything that feel, feels, 
like anything they feel can be equivalent to a fact regardless of whether it's actually happened or has a high likelihood of happening. So again, bringing back to this myth of immigration, mm-hmm. like actually recent studies have shown that there's a negative immigration from Mexico to the United States. Like right. more people are going back to Mexico yeah. from the U.S. than that are trying to go there. And this idea that, you know, the majority of people coming in are, are criminals or potential Legal. criminals is also inaccurate because native-born Americans commit crimes at a much higher rate yeah. than immigrants from any country. Mm-hmm. But if somebody feels afraid of somebody who is other or that they think is other from them, then mm-hmm. deciding, like, this is reality, even though it's not. It's not the reality that the rest mm-hmm. of us live in. Whereas having an emotional response to facts that are actually occurring in our shared reality instead of these boogeymen that are conjured up by like the talking heads on Fox, then this is an entire like different thing entirely. This is what you're saying, like that we need to have that kind of emotional substance to our discussions about policy as well. Yeah, and, and I think it I think the election campaign by Trump was a great example of that. Or even Modi, for instance. Yeah. He was playing on Oh, so emotional. Emotional. It's so, like the, the SRK style of, yeah. <laughs> of campaigning. And you're just like, yeah, I mean, they they are very skilled. Both of them are very mm-hmm. skilled at playing on the emotions of vulnerable voters. But often that is conflated with uh, an alternative reality that doesn't exist. Right. Right. But on the other hand, what we are feeling or what most people on the left perhaps are feeling or social justice activists are feeling, feminists are feeling, is coming from an informed place. We are basing what we are feeling on what's going on. It's rooted in reality. It's rooted in facts. It's not some imaginary world that we are like <laughs> conjured up and we're like, oh, right. you know, this is what it's leading to. And I think that's, that's the point you're making. That distinction is so important because everyone uses that emotional connect to... Um, to further their own agenda. Um, and I think it's it's very important to make that distinction that who is really rooting those emotions in reality versus who is really just playing up um, some part of like sentiment that people will get all worked up about and be like, hey, you know, yeah, let's ban all Muslims from coming in. Right. right? Or let's, let's, you know, detain all immigrants coming in at our border, even if they're trying to flee um, the worst conditions back in their countries. But I think this is a mistake that progressives often make too, right? Because we're so focused on being seen as the intellectual, rational kind of side of things that we're not willing to admit like when something is just really, really wrong and just calling it that way. And and this is not to, to, like, I I don't mean to disregard all of the, the excellent scholarship saying you know there's a lot of different perspectives in the world a lot of different things that can count as knowledge but it all has to have a basis in in reality <laughs> yeah i mean I, there's I, a there's a limit to what can be called a fact and what right. can be called knowledge and you know what what it means to be an informed person and i'm not saying that everyone has to have multiple college degrees in order to give an opinion about college of course not but you can't just say i feel scared of my neighbor Therefore, I'm going to call the police on them. Right. Yeah. Yeah. That just doesn't... And I think also, it doesn't have to be that this dichotomy. Like, that's what we were saying. Like, you know, right. undo that dichotomy of yeah. like feelings versus facts. It's important to know where those feelings are coming from, but it doesn't mean that if, if I'm feeling something, that I'm necessarily not also 
um, rationally thinking about something, right? And I think that is something that people miss a lot of times when they place the blame on us to um, about being so passionate or being so um, animated about a certain issue. Um, and I think that's also a gender, to be quite honest. It's like, because I've been told before, like, oh, you know, why, you, you, you shouldn't say stuff like that because it doesn't, you know, match your intelligence or something. Mm-hmm. And you're like, no, I have thought about this. <laughs> like, I have done my research and I'm angry because I've done my research, you know? This is what pissed me off so much the other day when I was trying to talk about the Supreme Court and getting shut down. I'm just like, no, I'm angry because I'm informed. Exactly. And I, I just cited, like, five cases to you. Why are you telling me I have nothing to say about this? Right. Maybe I'm saying it like I'm in this register as I'm saying now, and I should probably back away from the mic. <laughs> Instead of a nice, like, quiet, demure voice, let's have a Maybe nice... Maybe we should just say it in the very Let's way. have a nice NPR, like, Terry Gross-type conversation <laughs> about this. Um, no shade to Terry Gross, of course. <laughs> but, you know, it's like... Yeah. It doesn't... Me being loud about it does not detract from the substance of what I had to say about exactly. it in that moment. Yeah. And there's this, this pretty, you know, it's an old story, but there's a pretty heinous double standard for women in politics, or women even, like, talking about politics who yeah. aren't politicians, but when we think about somebody like Hillary Clinton, and as I mentioned at the top of the episode, yeah. people, a lot of people didn't vote for her because they just didn't feel connected to her. Right. But she's also grown up in, I mean, she's, she's come up in this environment where in order to succeed, she had to, to be very detached. Right. And... Be very stoic and be very like cool headed. Yeah, and uh, and then <laughs> to project that image. Right? And she's so fascinating too. I mean, this is this is a whole other point. But when she was the first lady, she then had to perform femininity right. in a different way. Like I remember and perform domesticity because, like, she really wasn't this. I mean, she'd already been mm-hmm. a trained lawyer and working for a long time before Bill Clinton was elected. But then there's all these articles about she had to talk about her chocolate chip cookie recipes or whatever it was, and she doesn't fucking have that. Like, I mean, it was very clear that she just sort of had to make it up or somebody, like, made it up and that she was, like, playing the role. But she had to both be that person and then still, in her professional political life, um, since she's one of the few first ladies that's actually had one of her own yeah. political careers, aside from, from what her husband was doing, she played a very different persona. Yeah. I mean, even on the night that she lost the election, um, <laughs> like, she couldn't cry in front of the, you know, the TV cameras and stuff, right? Like, yeah, it was, I mean, I, because I've read her book that she wrote after the election loss, and, um, and she was devastated. She really was. Um, she just couldn't make sense of what had happened. Um, and she writes... At length about feeling this, you know, being shut inside our house for days to really understand what was going on and just not not believing the election results. But when you see her um, speech at conceding the elections, it's it's like she's so calm and perfectly composed. composed. Yeah, and and it's like no, that's not what normal people would do, right? But she had to project that image because if she was to cry. Um, after hearing everything that she had heard during that election season, it would just be like, oh yeah, here's here goes another woman. She she's crying. She cannot stand, you know. To oh, lose. it's good we didn't vote for her anyway. <laughs> right. See how weak she is. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's interesting because it's almost like Kate McKinnon, the, mm-hmm. the actor, had to be her emotional right. proxy because yeah. she did that show on SNL right after know. the election as Hillary Clinton, um, playing uh, Leonard Cohen's Hallelujah on the piano, and it was such a 
whatever you think of, of of Hillary and the loss, like it was such an emotional moment. And like, I don't think I really cried until I saw that. Yeah. Yeah. You know, even though she's not Hillary, but she was standing in, like Hillary can't show it, but Kate she was like a boxing ball of plus Yes. Yes. <laughs> You know, and wearing that white pantsuit, you know, yeah. tapping into the, the suffragette movement from a long time ago. And anyway, it's, uh, yeah, it just, yeah. More women in politics hasn't meant thus far, although we th- we're, we're seeing this change a little bit, we're going to talk about this, but hasn't really deconstructed the double standard yet. It's still, for the most part, at least of women of a certain generation, having to sort of ape this, I mean, I say masculinity, but it is this sort of like, whatever you want to call it, like an unemotional, detached kind of stance. So this is the only way we can think about politics is in this very rational way. But we're seeing this change. Yeah, and I think just to that point of the double standards, I think um, it's, it's okay for men in some ways to be emotional in some context, right? And they are considered to this like adorable in touch with themselves, blah blah blah. But yeah, yay men. <laughs> good. Good for you. Being in touch Finally with your feelings. Expressed your feelings and but women are not afforded that privilege. Well, it's always in India just recently. Yeah. yeah. I mean Modi cries at the drop of a hat is <laughs> Yeah, like I said, the SRK style of leadership. But we have Sushma Swaraj, you know, like getting into all this heat for what was even she they gave a passport to a Hindu Muslim couple, couple, yeah, and then she got all this backlash from trolls. She got trolled about helping uh, this couple, and of course there were accusations of love jihad and stuff like that. Right, and she's um, like, "Oh, why don't you just go to Pakistan?" And right, like all, all the kind of normal crap that yeah. you get. Um, but instead of getting angry, I mean, instead of like showing any kind of emotional response right. to it, she's, she's managing it. Her party, by the way, is not like coming in to support her at all. No. Modi didn't say anything about it. No one in the BJP said anything about it. And she's like arbitrating it on Twitter, like even running opinion polls Again, for like her followers. Me. Yeah. It's like, let's be very, let's, let's do some research about exactly. this. Let's like actually just see let's be what people let... call. <laughs> yeah. And understand then... where is this coming from? And, and I think what was interesting was that her husband on Twitter right. was the one who who said something about how everything that's being said over the past few days about the trolls has, has really um, caused pain to the family. And in a way, he was, like just like Kate McKinnon on SNL, he was the proxy for Sushma Swaraj to project that emotion, which yeah. she couldn't openly on Twitter because if she were to do that, God forbid, people would be like, oh my God, another woman just, you know crying out for for some nonsensical thing like she cannot she doesn't have a thick skin to stand what the trolls are saying so it's like either way you do anything you're it's not enough and and i think that's that's the kind of treacherous line that women are supposed to walk especially in politics or um in any kind of i think public personality way that you you cannot really be yourself while on the other hand men who are never really that emotional at any point, if they are in touch with their feelings, they're applauded for it. Yeah. Um, and sort of like valorized for it. I really want to know what her, I mean, not that we're, we're going to know what her real thoughts are about this too, but when she got the results of that poll and it was a little bit too close for comfort, like so many people, 
What was the phrase was something like, uh, do you agree with these kinds of sentiments yeah. the trolls are expressing? Right. And most people disapproved. But not by much. It was like yeah. 53 to 47 or something. Yeah. And if I were her, I would have just been like, fuck, you know, why did I... <laughs> This is not the response that I was hoping for, and if she was trying to lead it into a debate about uh, civility, for instance, where do you go from there? If people are so divided on like what's acceptable, acceptable behavior, not only just levied toward any uh, public figure, but just how we communicate with one another about things like this, you know? So I think that's definitely worth exploring more, and we'll come back to that right after this break. Hey folks, it's autumn and in a lot of places around the world it's starting to get colder and we're all looking for some cozy activities to do indoors. We at the RJ Happy Hour podcast would like to suggest that one of those activities would be for you to complete our survey on what toxic masculinity means to you. Now available online on our website rjhappyhour.com and on our Facebook group. We really want as many different perspectives as possible for an upcoming mini-series on modern masculinities. So please take the survey and share with anyone else you think might be interested. And thank you so much for helping us out. So before that ad break, uh, we had left another point of talking about the civility discourse that's taken over um, America, and I think also partly India right now. Um, and just over the past few weeks, um, I think we have seen incidents of um, Trump administration officials being um, heckled in public spaces, especially for their um, support for the very awful immigration policy mm-hmm. of separating kids from their families at the border. Um, and yeah, just playing out lying about things basically. Um, and the right, the people on the right have labeled the accusation that you know, um, it, we need to be civil about this like whole thing, have a rational debate and discussion. And while I, I guess we assume or expect people on the right to say stuff like that. Um, what is more baffling is that people, even on the left, have been like, oh, you know, if you have something to say, you should go to the polls and vote these people out. Uh, we need to follow the democratic process. Um, and I think if people have supported on the left, this whole idea of heckling and protesting, they have also been sort of admonished by their own uh, party members, right? Yeah, even some Democrats we wouldn't really expect, like Bernie Sanders and Nancy yeah. Pelosi saying like, you know, we need clean waters, right? Yeah, and saying like, oh no, that's not the right response. So Maxine Waters was basically saying like, to Sarah Huckabee Sanders and Stephen Miller and Kirsten Nielsen and those other people, she's saying that that's good. Keep it up. Make them feel like they're not welcome anywhere, anytime. Mm-hmm. And then you have these other Democrats saying like, well, no, actually, we need to have we need to open up the Democratic Party and have room for this sort of mm-hmm. debate or whatever. Right. And I am very much with Maxine on this one, if I can call her by her first name. Totally, yes. <laughs> Auntie Maxine, because there really, there isn't any room for a civil discourse when you're talking about completely immoral policies. Right. And I use that word intentionally, knowing that yeah. that's a loaded word to talk about, okay, well, who's arbitrating morality? Yeah. But 
Yeah, I mean, the, the kidnapping children and orphaning them by not being able to reunite them with their parents who get deported, and there's just like no, there was no attempt to keep track of this when yeah. the initial, um, the initial immigrant, like, uh, detention was happening. That's just one of many horrible examples, but it's a pretty telling one. If your response to that is, oh, this is totally reasonable given the situation that's happening with our <laughs> with our borders, then I don't agree with your morality. Yeah. Like, we have a very different code of values yeah. at that point. Yeah, and I, and I think it goes back to the point that we've been making in earlier segments of this episode is, um, people are outraged. They're feeling angry, and protesting, or you know, maybe saying something to people who are responsible for carrying out these policies in the public space, is an outlet for their anger. Of course, that anger is important even during the election time when they vote for specific people and vote some people out because of these immoral policies. But I think it's it's also important because it's fueling this whole movement of actually bringing people together and standing up um, in um, you know, opposition to such policies. Um, and, and I was thinking about India too, where you know, we have had uh, people being lynched for who they are, um, especially minorities, um, people being um, gunned down, especially in the love jihad cases, couples being separated. Um, and also, like, I was actually just reading today that India has also been separating kids um, mm. at the border from their parents, especially for Bangladeshi immigrants. Oh, really? Um, and I, I feel, I think I felt horrible the fact that I didn't know this and I wasn't aware of it. I wasn't but, aware of it either. Um, and you can link but, yeah. to the website again. It was on Scroll um, website today. Um, but, you know, like, there is a point where you're like, okay, I cannot just have a civil discussion about this anymore. I am feeling violated, I'm feeling disgusted, and I have to let people in power know that, you know, this is not something I stand for, and, uh, and that we are not going to be quiet about it. Um, and so even in India, when people have taken to the streets, especially the Dalit activists, um, you know, people from middle class, upper middle class, especially in Mumbai, every time a protest happens, they're like, oh, you know, why are they causing such inconvenience, right? Mm -hmm. Why can't they do something else? Why can't they just go vote? And why can't they just have this or that? And it's like, but they're doing what they should be doing, what the democracy And they're also voting. Them. Yeah. And These things are mutually voting. exclusive. <laughs> yeah. And, and I think it goes back to the point of like, the fact that democracy is a year round thing, right? Yep. It's, we have to be involved, we have to participate in it every day. And these people are taking to the streets because they feel deeply violated and deeply upset about something or an oppression that's, you know, that's been carried out on them since generations. And if they are taking to the streets for it, I think the least we can do is actually support them and not say that they're causing inconvenience to this other lot, right? Um, and of course, that also brings to the point that somehow we are starting from the same footing, which we are not, because you can have a rational debate when both sides are sort of like on an equal footing, if not entirely, but you cannot have a rational debate or discussion with someone who's already coming from the point where they have committed all of these atrocities and mm -hmm. be on the other side like, oh, hey, yeah, we like to have a nice debate about it and see where it goes. <laughs> like, that's so stupid. 
Especially if those same people are in a position to keep committing those atrocities. I mean, exactly. There has, been, there has been no checks on that. And it's right. the same for India and the same for people who are in charge of the United States government right now. Yeah. And it's really telling what kinds of protest and by whom uh, are getting policed and criticized and which ones are allowed to just unfold right. as they do. And so, I mean, one great example of this, again, I mean, we're making a lot of generalizations in this episode, like left and right, conservative, progressive, and these are you know, imprecise terms. Yes, yeah. But I think it is important to draw these generalizations because it's they're they're generally true. There's right. gonna be exceptions to everything. Of course. But in general, the the left, the progressives, they are not advocating violence, they're not committing violence. Whereas the other side already yeah. has been. Exactly. And so we think about the example of the the Charlottesville protest, you know, there was a Last year, a bunch of white supremacists had rallied together, and there was a counter-protest from people who were right. critical of white supremacy, and yeah. it resulted in the murder of one of the counter-protesters. Uh, and then the response from Trump was that there were good people on both sides. I don't, I don't see that. False that, equivalency. Right, right, false equivalency. And it's just like, no, it's like when you have one side that's going rogue and just starting to attack and kill people, like that... You can't just put that on an equal footing with yeah. people who were <laughs> going up to a Trump official in a, a Mexican restaurant, which the irony of this, <laughs> they all seem to really love Mexican restaurants. Yeah. I don't know what it is. And saying, like, you shouldn't be able to eat your meal in peace while kids are separated from their parents. They don't know where they're going to see them again. Right. They're not having their meal in peace. Are they even, like, having a good meal? We don't know. Yeah. You know, that's just not the same thing. And, and the fact that in, in the situation, the oppressor is somehow telling the oppressed how to behave. Yeah. That's, that's just, uh, it's baffling, really. It's, it's like, oh, no, I'm going to teach you now how to actually <laughs> talk about your own oppression, and you'll be following guidelines set by the oppressor, right? So it's, it's sort of like, it just makes the game even more sort of like convoluted and, and leaning towards one side. So we're definitely not starting from the equal footing there. And there was a great article that was published in The Establishment last year by Tariq Musa, um, who wrote that there's an amazing vanishing trick that happens with uh, the people on that side who can, in one breath, claim to be oppressed, and in the next, boast about retaining most of the world's wealth and power and like government control. Because that's true, like they yeah. do. But there's this idea that the white and the wealthy are also the ones that are really the victims of this whole system is, it's baffling, but it resonates with a lot of people. Um, but Musa also made the point that you're getting at, that there, there, there really there can't even be, up to this point, there is no issue of balance. Hmm. Um, and yeah, maybe one day in a distant future, if we've actually managed to remove white supremacy, you know, capitalist heteropatriarchy from its position on the pedestal. Maybe we can have those kinds of right. debates yeah. on that equal footing. But um, in Moose's article, they mentioned that this isn't an issue of balance because the planet's entire history, and I'm quoting, is one of hearing, witnessing, and struggling against white people's ideas of race. We're not on equal platforms. We're still fighting an uphill battle against the mountain of white supremacy in the shadow of colonial history. Yeah. I, I think that also reminds me of what, I think Chimamanda, the famous author, she mentioned, I think it was, I don't want to 
I don't want to yeah, misquote it, but she said it on some TV interview where she was uh, being interviewed along with this white man, old white man, and and he was saying something along the lines that, oh, you know, this wasn't racism or this is not what black people should be feeling. She's like, you don't get to decide oh. <laughs> what racism feels like, oh. right? And that's exactly the point. And I think the sheer hypocrisy here is also that they only want rational debate and discussion when people stand up for their rights and they start speaking out about it. Like, they never wanted a discussion on the immigration policy before implementing it, which is what the democratic process should be like, right? You debate and you discuss in the Congress, you get, you, um, yeah, you, I mean, you try and understand what your constituents want, you try and see where the public opinion is leaning towards, all of those things. They don't want to do it at that point. Once the awful policies have been implemented and people are outraged, mm -hmm. that's when they want that rational debate, which is, which again is ridiculous. Yeah, I agree. And I, there's on this point, um, there was a really good article by Michelle Goldberg in the New York Times recently. And again, talking about these self-appointed guardians of civility yeah. now being offended and upset that people are, <laughs> exactly. are expressing anger and passion about things that they see as just really fucking wrong. Um, and so she mentioned a Washington Post editorial that urged protesters to think about the precedent they're setting. And quoting from this, how hard is it to imagine, for example, people who strongly believe that abortion is murder, deciding that judges or other officials who protect abortion rights should not be able to live peaceably with their families? And her response to this editorial was, uh, well, this isn't hard to imagine at all since it's already happened. Abortion opponents have assassinated abortion providers in their homes and churches, yeah. firebombed their clinics, and protested at their children's schools. And the failure to acknowledge this very recent history, this ongoing history, if you go to any abortion clinic in Violent the United States, history, yeah. and even just seeing not even the extreme cases, but how protesters react toward women who are trying to get health care. Right. Um, like, th this, this is a sign of this reflexive false balance, and you can't actually, you can't actually kind of get your mind around this, what she calls the asymmetric extremism of the Republican Party at this point in time. Yeah. Um, yeah, it's just, it's not. <laughs> and, and I think, again, like, you know, when people are outraged and when people want to make their voice heard, protesting has always been a hallmark of democracy, of any healthy democracy, right? And it's, it was done during uh, the fight for civil rights, uh, for, for Dalit rights in India, mm -hmm. for women's rights across the world. Protesting is one thing, I mean, of course, like using nonviolent methods of protesting. I don't think we are ever endorsing any form of violence to... No, absolutely um, not. That's the distinction we're drawing, too, right. is that generally progressives don't advocate or yeah. commit violence. And there's always going to be some exceptions, but... Right. Um, and, and somehow to relegate that to the fact that it is not democratic, that itself is also very problematic. And I think in India where there's this designated space to protest, which again seems really weird to me, because every time it's, it's called Janta Manta in yeah. the right? and, <laughs> and it's, it's a stupid, I mean of course, okay, we have a space to go protest, but it's like the government has actually given you a specific place to protest and they're like, it's cordoned off yeah. from And it's like, oh, let it. them do whatever they want here. They have their right, yeah. which is not really the right to, you know, like if I want to protest somewhere in the center of the city, then I should be allowed to do that. That's my 
constitutional right as a citizen. Um, and I think that it's a farce that the government has given us the small space to protest and be like, oh yeah, you guys keep doing your thing on the on this side while we are taking care of business here. I mean, I guess it was in like Santa de Dwarka or something, but yeah. it's still cordoned off. And the whole point of protest is it's supposed to be inconveniencing. It's right. supposed to enter into your, your daily thought in life yeah. and make you stop and think about something that's going on that you might not have thought about otherwise or... Yeah taken the time to, to really consider the other person's opinion about right. it. Earlier in the episode, I alluded to the fact that we're making a lot of generalizations and a lot of kind of binary oppositions that we normally don't like to do. Uh, but the reason that we've been harping on that in this episode in particular is because there's something really important to keep in mind that when we're talking about people who decide policies that affect all aspects of life for members of a nation and also affect other countries in the world because of the trade relationships and other things that we have. In many of these cases, the risk of being too polite and too civil about issues that deeply affect us is that people will die or suffer terribly. And you know, one of the examples that is closest to, to our work when we think about is with uh, abortion rights and access. Because quite frankly, if these so-called pro-life people really get their way, the only outcome is a world in which more women are dying or having complications that have all sorts of negative effects. Yeah. So it's not just about, it's not about winning. It's not about like one side having their voice heard, being in power, yada, yada, yada. It's about that there's actually some really evil shit happening that is going to hurt or kill a lot more people if we allow it to go unchecked. So as Jennifer Wright recently said, um, speaking about this issue of the anti-abortionist gaining power, you know, she's saying... If anti-abortionists are going to keep calling pro-choice people baby killers, then it's time to start referring to them for what they are, people who would kill women. And this is an extreme thing, but I think we need to take it seriously when we're yeah. thinking about the impact of, of protest and like what happens when you stay silent about things. Um, so she continues on to say, at the very least, there are people who will stand by cheerfully and smugly while they enact a system that leads to 14-year-old girls drinking rat poison. This is unconscionable. She says that it's easy for some women, for some politicians to bank on women being too polite, to fight about gendered issues. Don't be. If we're polite about this issue, we will die. So getting back to what we were saying toward the top of the episode about how women are suspect, women are expected to be uh, demure and make everyone feel uh, comfortable at talking about an issue and not be strident. Um, not be uh what's shrill that's one of the favorite words for describing <laughs> women who are who are passionate and opinionated about something we're right. just we're just causing a fuss we're just being shrill yeah. and unpleasant and it's like no actually this is something that is a serious risk to us and even if it might not actually happen to me i i feel very deeply that i could be in that position you know i have a uterus <laughs> shit could happen i could be pregnant one day and need a procedure and or that i could have other women in my life who, right you know, like my friends my 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 mom my i don't know whoever in my life who could face the consequence of this awful brutal immoral policy 
And we do because everyone knows someone who has an abortion. Everyone right. loves someone who's had an abortion or had a spontaneous abortion as a miscarriage or had complications during a delivery of a so-called normal birth. You know, this stuff is a lot closer to home than you might think it is, even if you're fortunate enough to have good health care and enough money to take care of any emergencies that come up. Yeah. So we just want to make that point that it's not about like, oh, progressives are are better, or like we're on the back foot because we're not in power right now. It's that there are things that should be non-negotiable. And it seems like some people in in this rush to police protest and to argue for civility are forgetting that. Yeah, and and you know it's not just an abstract conversation for us. No. It has real life consequences for people for us or people we love. And and I think that that's what's at stake right now. So if we don't speak up, if we don't protest, if we don't uh, stand up against the policies that our governments are putting in place to marginalize and to oppress other people, then um, really there is no point in, in, you know, in talking about feminism or talking about reproductive justice. And I think that's, that's where this anger and passion comes from uh, for us to be talking about this issue on this podcast. you for constructive anger because sometimes it just kind of comes out and you're like blah outrage whatever but it's very much about harnessing that that power and that justified anger toward doing something else and so recently we've seen some female politicians that are up and coming that uh, I think are are using their their anger and their outrage and their the personal experience being on the margins in a really productive way and I didn't know if you wanted to kind of slide into our Feminist yeah, shout-outs that, to speak about this. That does bring us to our feminist shower and my feminist shower and someone who's given me a lot of hope yeah. over the last week or so is um, the really amazing Alexandria Cortez. Ocasio Cortez uh, from New York, who won the, the primary democratic election last week. And she's 28 and like full of passion. And I and I feel like I could see myself in her because She's not afraid to talk about being idealistic about things she believes in, um, and she's not afraid of being passionate about what she believes in, but she's also someone who um, is able to use those feelings, something that we've been talking about, uh, and those emotions to um, you know, harness into real change for her constituents in the Bronx and the Queens. And, and, and I think she is someone who has really set the, uh, the path for younger women to be thinking about running for public office, but also saying that you don't have to be fearful of the fact that you are um, idealistic about certain things or you are passionate and you are um, all in for, <laughs> you know, fighting for that change. Um, and the fact that she won against um, someone who was a very well-established uh, Democratic Party contender, I think almost... Um, to be replacement of Nancy Pelosi in the House, yeah. um, so like pretty high-ranking member of the Democratic Party, um, without any corporate funding, she was able to run for this election, and without uh, really relying on um, you know awful ads <laughs> that politicians mm-hmm. often run when they are trying to demean the the opposite side. 
um, the fact that she was able to really connect with her constituents and say that, um, you know, we can fight this battle together. Um, I think that's, that's just inspiring. And I think it's also made me think about it. We have, I've spoken to you about this, of perhaps participating in local uh, elections back in India someday. Not anytime soon, but at some point. But she's just given a lot of hope in the fact that you can be a woman, you can feel things, you can be emotional, and you can still be strategic, you can still be rational, and you can, you can win what you believe in. So I think that's, that's a really inspiring. She's my feminist shout-out for this episode. Yeah, I... So, so in love with her and her candidacy. And I think that happened the day before Kennedy retired or like right around there. Yeah. And so it was a very like high, low emotion day. I like started yeah. out getting, <laughs> I opened my phone in the morning and I get the news about her election. I'm like, oh my God, this is amazing. And then toward the end of the day, I was like, ah, it's in shambles. But it's important not to lose sight of the the good things that are happening, yeah. the promising the silver things. Silver linings. Yeah, yeah, silver linings, but also I think, you know, to, to, to build off of a couple of the points you were making, some of the things I'm really excited about that she represents are that she she didn't do attack ads, like you said. Right. Um, she has a lot of passion and a lot of anger, but it is it's justified anger at the system and that she's yeah. personally experienced, a lot of people in her community have experienced. And she directed her energy toward that instead of doing personal attacks on her opponent. Right. Um, which, yeah, maybe that works in politics as usual, but that shouldn't be what it's about. And the other thing that I'm excited about her is that she wasn't afraid to show how hard she was working. Yeah, um, it's a hustle. <laughs> it's a hustle. It's a hustle every day. Yeah. And I mean, everyone should be hustling and not just people who are uh, coming from more, more marginalized backgrounds. But she shared that picture online about her first pair yeah. of campaign shoes where she right. had literally worn the soles through because she had knocked on so many doors and she right. hustled every day. And... Her opponent didn't really do the work, and he wasn't even he, like he didn't even show up for the right? debate. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So you know, like that to me is is hope that yeah, and and I think she what what she really said. I think it was with Stephen Colbert uh, show the 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 late show, and she mentioned that you know she she was able to really change who came out to vote in that election, and that led to that stunning victory. Yeah. Um, and I think that says a lot about the hustle that she put in every yeah. day, but also the fact that she wasn't afraid, again, to go back to the point you were making, to connect with her constituents, mm -hmm. and that's because she was able to empathize, yeah. which is what we've been trying to say throughout this episode. Um, she, she's a um, really like, strategic person in how she planned her running for this um, election, but she wasn't afraid to com combine that with emotional connect that you need with the voters. What about you, Kristen? What's your feminist shout-out? So, I, I'm not usually one to, to talk about patriotic themes, <laughs> but uh, we are recording this episode on the 4th of July, which, as many of you know, is the American official Independence Day. So, when the, the, American, the first Americans gave their declaration of independence against the British, who were, at the time, the colonial oppressor, and... Uh, thus starting the Civil War that would eventually allow America to become an independent country. Uh, so I am giving my feminist shout out not exactly to the holiday, but to reviving a tradition of protest on July 4th until we reach that point where the country actually embodies the kinds of values that we talk about in our Constitution, um, meaning freedom and justice 
for for all and the welcoming spirit of uh give me your poor you're tired yeah you're oppressed because we've done a really shitty job of that recently but uh i was reading this article by holly jackson um who writes about 19th century radical movements in the united states and she is saying how the tradition of protest on July 4th is coming back, but it has a long history. Uh, so the original declaration is one example of this, a pretty stunning one, uh, considering that the people who made the declaration were committing an act of treason. This is a, something that was a lot, more, uh, a lot more serious than yelling at Stephen Miller that he can't enjoy his taco salad. Let's just put it in perspective here. Uh, <laughs> so that original protest then, um, you know, allow this country to become, to become independent. And then later on with the abolition movements against slavery, there was a lot of uh, bringing focus on July 4th to the fact that, yes, America had become an independent country, but only for a certain kind of person. So black people were not free, women were not free, and that we still had a lot to work on to make sure that we actually fulfilled our promises to yeah. every citizen of everyone who comes to this country. Um, so I would like to give my feminist shout out to everyone I know who has been involved, uh, not just in the last two years, but uh, especially, I have seen a big change in American apathy uh, turning toward more protesting, more lively conversations with one another with various levels of civility, if you want to use that. But we're at, least, we're, at least we're talking about it in a way that I think that um, because of complacency, because of this idea of American exceptionalism, that our democracy will never crumble, we had really just forgotten that we needed to work on it with one another. Um, so I'm giving my shout out to everyone who's working in whatever way to resist oppression in the United States and make it a country that is is worthy of uh, all the promises that, that it has made fulfilled to some people but not others. So that is a wrap for us on this episode, but um, we've been talking a lot about how we've been feeling about sharing things happening in the world, but also some of the good things happening in the world. Um, if you'd like to share your own experiences of uh, being passionate, outraged, or, or just simply frustrated with what's going on, uh, do write in to us. You can connect with us on Facebook or our website, um, or write to us at hello uh, at And um, we'd love to hear from you um, about your own experiences, and we'd be happy to share that on our next episode. Um, so we look forward to hearing from you on until then what i want to say until then like good night and good luck <laughs> no. i want to say like until then don't oh yeah until then don't be afraid to feel what you're feeling and keep resisting don't be too polite your feedback and support means a lot to us and you can find us on our website rjhappyhour.com and on facebook or email us at hello at rjhappyhour.com with any comments or questions about what you've heard or things you want us to touch on in future episodes. Bye for now!